Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Samir Keynes, Trade and Globalization Editor for The Economist. And I'm Chad Bown, a senior fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics. In this episode, we're going to talk about one of the arguments people make for tariffs. It's the theory of infant industry protection. We'll be joined by a special guest, Reka Yuhas, who is an assistant professor of economics at Columbia University. Rekha has looked into a historical example with results that may surprise you. If that isn't clickbait, I don't know what is. Listen bait. Listen bait? Is that podcast <laughs> listen bait? First, we need to define this theory of infant industry protection. Here's Rekha. The theory of infant industry protection says that firms, particularly in developing countries, that are setting up an industry from scratch may be initially uncompetitive if they're subject to foreign competition and may benefit from receiving temporary protection from foreign competitors. So the idea is that you've got companies in an industry that are basically starting from scratch, and, and they are not going to stand a chance if they try to compete on, on the global marketplace. And so, at first at least, they might need a bit of protection so that they have time to become more efficient and then eventually beat the foreign competition. My understanding is that the the idea was first formalized in, in, in precisely this way by Alexander Hamilton. He made the case for the infant industry protection of the nascent cotton industry in the U.S. around the 1800s. This is the time when Britain is sort of massively industrializing. They're forging ahead in, in, in cotton textiles. And Hamilton was worried precisely about this idea that U.S. cotton firms would not have an opportunity to, to, to survive in domestic markets if they had to face kind of the onslaught of these more efficient British producers who'd been producing for a lot longer. So the big question here is whether infant industry protection works. Do industries that get this protection actually take advantage of it and graduate to become globally competitive? Or are they actually made lazy by it? Now, historically, there there are a bunch of examples of industries that got this kind of protection. And, and so one could look just to see what happened to them. If they do relatively well relative to the, the industries that didn't get protection, then one might conclude that the theory works. This is precisely the type of way in which people have traditionally gone about trying to understand the effects of infant industry protection. Of course, the, the problem here is that you need to find a comparison industry within, within a country that you believe represents sort of what the protected industry would look like in the absence of protection. Now, this is going to be very difficult, partly because we believe that policymakers aren't choosing these industries at random. And so the types of industries that they're going to be choosing are just going to be fundamentally different from the types of industries that they're not choosing. So if a protected industry does well, you just don't know if it's because of the protection or if it actually would have done well anyway. There could be something special about the kind of industries that end up getting picked that generates the appearance of the protection working. I asked Rekha 
how much good, really convincing evidence there was that gets at this question of, does infant industry protection work? I think there's there's actually not a lot of great research on this because the idea that infant industry protection could work was out of vogue in the profession for a long time. But what happened um, during the same period of time is that a bunch of sort of new empirical methods were developed that has given us sort of fresh eyes in, in, in how we look at these sorts of questions. And I think it's only been in the last couple of years that we have a couple of good papers that all use these new empirical methods to take a fresh look at, at what is a very old question. There haven't been a lot of, of good papers in the past, but it turns out Rekka has done one of the new good ones. So the question here is, what happens when you, you give protection to an industry that is not competitive? Will it thrive in the long run? And the setting Rekka looks at is France in the early 19th century and, and the case of the cotton textiles industry. So, so basically when cloth making was becoming mechanized. Now we're going to need a little bit of history here. So it makes sense to sort of backtrack a little bit to the beginning of the 18th century and contrast Britain and France because what's going to be important to my argument is that these two countries up to a certain point had very similar cotton textile industries. In both countries, this was a pretty small sector relative to other textile sectors. And in both countries, they used what we call cottage industry, which meant that that women were spinning raw cotton into cotton yarn in, in their own homes. As many listeners will know, what happens in the middle of the 18th century is that Britain invents mechanized cotton spinning. This is the famous spinning journey. Basically, they figure out how they can spin multiple threads of yarn simultaneously. This is going to have revolutionary effects. This is the flagship industry of the first industrial revolution. It's like the iPhone of the 19th century. And Britain is going to become both incredibly productive in this industry and they're going to, by the mid-19th century, completely dominate world markets in, in this product. So France, on the other side of the channel, is aware of these momentous changes that are, that are taking place in Britain and they're trying their best to adopt these techniques. However, by the, the, the closing decades of the the 18th century, it's very clear that French spinners, both in the old technology, hand spinning, and in the new technology, mechanized cotton spinning, cannot compete with the British. So this is a typical sort of case of infant industry argument. There are these new mechanized cotton spinners in France who are just simply uncompetitive with the technology frontier, Britain, who are decades ahead of them in terms of methods, techniques, and productivity. So Britain leaps ahead, and the French really want to catch up. But it turns out, catching up is hard. So on the one hand, the British figure out very quickly that the the intellectual property that they have is extremely valuable. And so they do their best to prevent the export, both of machines and of trained technicians, skilled workers, and mechanics. All of these things are banned until the middle of the 19th century. France is trying to get the blueprints out at least, and we now have good evidence that there was also a lot of uh, a lot of 
British engineers, mechanics, and workers who are actually helping the French set up these, these, these first firms illegally. But what's much more important is that a lot of the a lot of the knowledge that you need to have to be able to operate these firms and these machines efficiently is not the type of knowledge that you can import. We call this tacit knowledge because it's it's the type of knowledge that you can only acquire if you do the the actual activity yourself. A good example that people often often mention is that you can give someone extremely detailed instructions about how to ride a bike, but until they actually figure out and learn how to ride a bike themselves, they're not going to get it. And this is exactly the sort of thing that's going on in this in, in, in this industry. Until the French have time to stumble upon the techniques that work, they can't get the industry off the ground. The theory of infant industry protection essentially involves this, this kind of learning by doing and industries needing the time to develop. What you need to remember about France and Britain in the late 18th, early 19th century is that they're figuring out how to do factory-based production without any previous guidance on how to do this. They need to, they need to figure out how to manage large numbers of workers. They need to get workers to obey the hierarchy of a factory-based environment. They need to figure out how to power machines and how to lay them out on the factory floor in the right way. Initially, the the first cotton mills that they built were multi-storied mills, and it it wasn't until a couple of them burnt down that they figured out that you couldn't build so high because of the fire hazard. So all of these things are precisely the type of teething problems that are characteristic of, 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 of industries to which the infant industry argument applies. So we have this industry in France, which is far behind the British one. And the risk is that with the British industry going so strong, the French one really starts struggling from the effects of all this import competition. But then they get some trade protection. So what happens next is that as a consequence of the French Revolution, France goes to war with the rest of Europe, and this is going to last for the better part of two and a half decades. In the midst of all this, Napoleon enters the scene in France. And one of the stages of this military and economic warfare between Britain and France is what is known as the Napoleonic blockade against British goods. What happens is actually remarkably helpful for my project. Britain has all the naval military power, So Napoleon can't implement a standard blockade of Britain, which would have the French Navy surround strategic ports of Britain to to, to stop uh, British vessels from leaving. What Napoleon does instead is sort of the next best thing from his point of view, which was to use his land-based power over all of continental Europe to try and prevent British goods from entering the continent. And you can see already that this is going to be extraordinarily difficult because he has to now implement a blockade along the entire coastline of continental Europe. As Rekha said, these barriers to trade were, I'm sure, very disruptive at the time, but it turns out they were great for economists. So the useful part to my analysis is precisely the fact that the blockade was a disaster from the beginning. So as you can imagine, Napoleon spent the best part of the next seven to eight years trying to 
plug in the holes that opened up in the system immediately. Smugglers, uh, foreign powers who were iffy about signing up to the blockade from the beginning started to evade the blockade in all kinds of ways from, from the very first day it was implemented. Now, the way that this is going to play out that's helpful for me is that there's a there's a very specific geographic pattern as to where the blockade was more or less successful. So because the British are so powerful um, in terms of their navy, it's actually the Mediterranean where a lot of the blockade unravels to a large extent. Economic historians call the Mediterranean a British sea at the time. That is that is sort of the extent to which the British Navy is overwhelming. And what ends up happening is that goods intended for France and other continental European countries enter Europe through these southern smuggling routes. But this is this is really brilliant for my, my project, because if you think about what the map of Europe looks like, the traditional pattern of trade between Britain and France is that goods tend to enter France from a, from a northerly direction. So it's the northern parts of France that are the most subject to competition from Britain because they're the ones that are closest. What now happens is that the pattern of trade changes completely as it's now the northern parts of France that become the most protected. And so what I'm able to use is the fact that because different regions of France are exposed to a different extent to the continental blockade, they're going to enjoy differing amounts of protection from British competition. So what you've got is an industry in France that looks like a great candidate for infant industry protection. And then different regions in France get different amounts of protection, basically by chance. It's dictated by geography and the British trying desperately to get around this Napoleonic blockade. It's not because of some politician picking out cotton as a target for industrial policy or special protection. And that turns out to be a great experiment for economics research. So in the north, where the blockade is most effective, there is most protection. In the south, it's much easier for the Brits to smuggle stuff in. And Rekha finds that this difference in the amount of protection mattered. It mattered for what happened to the industries in these two areas. So what I found is that in the northern parts of France that enjoy the most protection from British competition, cotton spinning thrives. And importantly, it thrives on the new technology. So I find a massive increase in mechanized cotton spinning activity. What's also interesting is that in the South, and particularly around the Spanish border, there is in fact a slight decline in mechanized cotton spinning activity. And so this is very consistent with the idea that the regions in France that are the most protected from Britain are the ones where the cotton spinning industry starts to take off to the largest extent. Now, with this sort of analysis, you might worry that actually you're not picking up what you, what you think you are. You think you're picking up the effect of the trade protection, which seems to have helped the, the French cotton spinning industry, but maybe there's something else going on. So this is the name of the game in the meat of the paper, trying to rule out alternative explanations. And what we worry about are things that are changing in the North and the South to a different extent, exactly around the time when the blockade is being implemented. 
And it's not hard to come up with these types of stories. France is at war with the rest of uh, continental Europe and Britain. So, of course, there are going to be many other things that are changing. One of the things that I do in the paper is that I look at how some other textile industries fare. Because cotton textiles is really the one that is subject to this type of British competition. It's also the one that is the new industry and is facing these types of teething problems. So to the extent that it's really this infant industry mechanism that's at play here, we wouldn't really expect there to be a similar response from other textile industries in in, in this north-south divide way. And that is exactly what I find. In the paper, they go through a ton of other explanations for the, for the results and basically try to rule them out. Like, you know, did did the more successful North have better access to power or, or perhaps better access to consumers, like in, in, in Paris, for example? But the results hold up. Really, the reason I believe at the end of the day that the results survive is that at the time... There were parts of southern France that were similar, that looked very similar to parts of northern France. So in particular, it's it's the area around Lyon that started with a similar traditional cotton textile industry that had access to fast-flowing streams and coals, that had access to large consumer markets. And for this reason, there are sufficiently similar regions in the north and south that we can rule out these types of alternative explanations. So here, it looks like the protection was good for domestic producers, at at least in the short run. And to be honest, I'm not all that surprised by that. But that's not really the right question here. For the infant industry argument for protection to work, the question that we should be asking is, what happens when the protection goes away? Did the protection end up developing an industry that's strong enough to stand up on its own when it's exposed to import competition again? That's exactly right. So in the analysis... I differentiate between what happens in the short run while this protection lasts, which is sort of the time when the industry is supposed to be growing up, and what happens in the longer run when you remove the protection. This is this is what we're really after when we ask the question of whether these new infant industries can actually grow up and become competitive. So this is a little bit challenging in, 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 in this setting because Even after the Napoleonic Wars ended, France had in place various tariff and non-tariff barriers to protect the the cotton industry in France. However, because I'm comparing regions within France, and these regions are at competition with each other, we can test the long-run implications of the infant industry argument by looking at how different regions fare relative to each other. And what I find is that this initial advantage that the North acquired in terms of getting a head start in developing their industry, exactly as the infant industry argument would predict, actually is something that pans out in the longer run as well. So in the long run, the cotton industry settles in the North and the East of the country. This is is the pattern of, of, of where most industry is located in France through the 20th century. So not only does it stagnate in the South in the long run through the 19th century, but by the end of the 19th century, there's really not a lot of cotton textile industry left in the South, which is consistent with the fact that the regions that didn't get this type of head start were eventually outcompeted 
by the more productive, more efficient northern producers. So if the protected industry in northern France survived in the long run to compete, and the one in the south didn't and then effectively disappeared, it looks like the infant industry protection worked. Yeah, and listeners will will probably know that the reaction among many economists to this result is going to be skepticism. I asked Rekha about the reaction she got. So I was very worried about the reaction because for a long time, many people have believed that infant industry protection cannot work. So these are somewhat surprising and and, and potentially controversial results. I actually didn't find more than usual amounts of skepticism. And I think the reason for that is actually that the timing of the paper was very lucky. So I think a lot of the thinking in the profession has changed, partly because of the financial crisis, but partly because we've also seen a very different form of capitalism thrive in China, one which has many features of infant industry protection. And and as we've reconsidered the East Asian growth miracle, the information that we have on these countries is also that spectacular levels of growth in these countries coincided with what many people would would think of as infant industry protection. So I think given where we stand at the moment, I I felt that there was just more openness in the profession to accepting that that, that this this could be the way the world works, in fact. I think the final question, though, and, and maybe the most important one is is what policymakers should take away from all of this? Should should they be more open to this kind of infant industry protection? So I think what this paper and some of the other research coming out recently has shown is that the economics behind infant industry definitely seems to be something that's relevant. Where I would pause a little bit is that we still have very limited understanding of how the policy implementation actually works. One of the very nice things in the setting that I examine is that we can switch off the policymaker choosing which industry to protect. But that's not the case in reality when we want to do infant industry protection. When we, when we want to do infant industry protection in reality, the policymaker needs to choose industries and they need to choose policies. And, and given the very mixed results that we've seen when infant industry protection has been implemented worldwide, I think where we really need additional research and where where our understanding is really very poor is how to actually go about doing these types of policies. When you think about poor countries who want to develop their manufacturing sectors, these are countries uh, that have a hard time implementing sophisticated policies. So figuring out how to implement these types of policies when the capacity for state to do this in a very sophisticated way is limited is, I think, what's sort of the first order question for research and also for policymakers. More research needed. A very good conclusion. And that is all from Trade Talks. A huge thank you to Rekha Juharts at Columbia University. Do read her paper, Temporary Protection and Technology Adoption, Evidence from the Napoleonic Blockade. We'll post a link to her paper at our website. That is www.tradetalkspodcast.com. And thanks also to Colin Warren, our audio guy. Do follow us on Twitter. I'm at Samaya Keynes. 
And I'm at Chad Bown. And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one but two underscores, at trade underscore underscore talks. Because having two regions with different exposures to the Napoleonic blockade was better than one.